Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Once again, that's Ephesians chapter 2. This is not the passage that we're studying here this morning. We're going to be spending our time uh, in Matthew 10, 5 through 15 for what is now our third week in that passage. But before we get into Matthew 10 today, I want us to prepare ourselves for this study by reading what Paul has to say here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Of course, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is probably one of the more well-known passages in the entire New Testament, and for good reason, because in this passage, Paul provides perhaps the most profound and succinct description of what has happened to every man and woman who has believed in Christ, again, perhaps in the entire New Testament. That's where I want us to begin today as we ready ourselves to study Matthew 10, 5 through 15. I want to remind you of the significance of what occurred in your salvation. Paul states it like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Friends, this is an amazing passage that we just read. You know what Paul is saying right here? He says that each and every one of you in this room who is now a Christian, each and every one of you who has trusted in Jesus for salvation from your sins, he says that at one time you were all enemies of God. Children of the devil, actually, who were actively engaged in ongoing rebellion against your Creator. And even more than this, you were completely dead in that state. In other words, you weren't just in rebellion against God, but you were stuck in that position. You were not only waging war against God, but you were stuck in that position because you were spiritually dead in your sins. To put it another way, your problem at this time was not that there was this internal struggle going on where you truly loved and desired God, but there was this other battle going on in your soul with your love for sin. The problem wasn't that you heard God's commands and you really wanted to respond because you loved God, but you just had a hard time following through with it because sin's temptations were just so strong. It was just too good and pleasing for you to resist. No, you didn't just disobey. You were dead in your sins. Meaning there was nothing in you that caused you to find God appealing. 
If I could put it this way, you disobey God, pursuing the desires of your flesh. Why? It's because that's who you were at your core. You were not a basically good person who occasionally committed sins. No, at your core, you were a sinner. Which means that you were children of wrath, destined to face the unbridled rage of a holy, righteous, and omnipotent God. You were all haters of God, doomed to eternal destruction. But then, but then, while you were in that condition, God did something utterly amazing. And I don't just mean that He sent His Son to die for your sins. Yes, God did do that. He sent His very Son to suffer the wrath that you deserve in your place so that you don't have to. That is amazing. But Paul's talking about something else here in Ephesians 2. Not only did God send His Son to die for your sins, He did something else as well. And that is He made you alive. God didn't only make the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ available to you, He turned your spiritual deadness into spiritual life so that hearing this gospel, you might respond and receive it. He came to you while you were a slave to sin in the kingdom of Satan. And while you were in that state, destined to be swept away in the fury of his wrath, he freed you from the power of that sin so that by faith you might be transferred into the kingdom of his son and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you understand? He did this so that you might be seated with, so that you might receive the inheritance of the prince of all creation. And with this calling that you might no longer live as a slave to sin, but as a son of righteousness. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. This is, again, simply and utterly astonishing. Now you might wonder what this passage has to do with today's message. Today we're going to be in Matthew 10, 5 to 15, as a part of this three-part series that we've been looking at together called Christ's Mission Mandates. We're going to be exploring Jesus' instructions for how we should conduct the Great Commission. And it may not seem as if this has anything to do with what we just read in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 explains the transformation that occurred when God regenerated our dead souls and made us alive in Christ. Matthew 10, 5-15 explains how we should pursue the Great Commission. Those two concepts don't seem to be very directly related, so you may be wondering, why would I take time to review all this with you before our discussion today? And I mention it because I think if you're really going to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10, to the point that you actually leave here and begin to apply it, then you need to remember what Paul says about you as a Christian in Ephesians 2. In Matthew 10, 5-15, Jesus is instructing the disciples about how he wants them to go on the Great Commission. And while this information is helpful, it means nothing if we're not driven to actually go out and pursue this mission. Many Christians, even most I would venture to say, are not driven to pursue this mission. And you see it in the way they order their lives, the way they spend their energy, their time, their resources. It all reflects that. 
There are many other things that take precedent in their lives over Christ, and then even when it does come to their life in Christ, there are many other things that take precedence over this mission. It's just way down the list of priorities. The Great Commission is kind of an option. It's a thing in their life somewhere, but it certainly isn't near top priority. And so when most of us hear a message on the Great Commission, I think the reaction that we're tempted to give is something along the lines of, well, you know, I think that's nice. I guess it's true. I, I should be sharing the gospel more frequently. You know, maybe I'll try to find a way to get around to that this week. There's a recognition that we should do something, but it's really not prioritized as, it, as anything of great significance. It's a part of our lives, but it's a very minor one. And so sermons on this topic just kind of touch us lightly. They're heard, but they're not applied because they're not seen as that important. Ultimately, this kind of attitude can only come from forgetting the significance of our status in Christ. In Christ, we have been called out of darkness into the service of God. As Paul says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus has redeemed us so that we might serve Him. The King of kings offered Himself up to death so that you might live through Him and live for Him. Listen, there is no higher calling than this one. There's no calling in the entire universe more important than what you have already received in Christ Jesus. I don't know where Jesus falls on your list of priorities during the day. I don't know how often you think of Him, how often you consider your daily goals and actions in light of the relationship that you enjoy with Him, but He should be at the top when you get up in the morning. The number one question that should be on your mind when you wake up is, how can I serve Jesus today? How can I glorify Him? That becomes, before everything else, that's what your status in Christ means. And once you realize that, that's when a passage like the one we're studying today starts to become very important. That's when it begins to grip you to the degree that you go out and you start doing what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus is describing here, this is your mission. Jesus suffered the wrath of God so that you might be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. He's granted you the Spirit and opened your eyes so that you could see the truth of the gospel. He has transferred you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. And He's done all of this for one reason. And that's that you might serve and worship Him. This is your calling. To glorify Jesus. Again, there's no higher calling than this one. The King of all creation has personally called you into His service in the way that He wants you to serve Him right now. He has stated quite explicitly. And it's by sharing His gospel. He wants you to advance His kingdom, to serve Him by advancing the kingdom of God through the making of disciples. He wants you to be His ambassador to all the nations of the earth, telling them of the same good news concerning His kingdom that you've come to know and believe. And this is why Matthew 10 is so important. The degree to which we as a body are faithful to pursue this mission and to do it in the way that Jesus is commanding here, that is the degree to which we will be a healthy and in the truest sense of the word, a successful church. I want to make that clear as we continue to look at Jesus' instructions today. I don't want us to lose sight of this. We cannot let this chapter slip us by. 
We can't ignore what Jesus is saying here. We must listen and be faithful to these instructions. Once again, we're in the third week of a study I've entitled Christ's Mission Mandates because in verse 5 of this passage it says, These twelve uh, Jesus sent out instructing them. And the word here for instruct carries the weight of command. Jesus is teaching, he's informing his disciples, but he's informing them about what he wants them to do specifically. He's issuing them instructions. In other words, the information that he's providing here isn't good advice. It's an expectation. He's issuing mandates for this mission. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't already done so. Again, read along with me. Matthew 10, 5 through 15. Matthew says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town." As I've explained over the past couple of weeks, the instructions that Jesus provides here are not cut and paste. You can't just take these instructions and then immediately drop them into the mission that Christ has for you and I. Jesus gave these instructions to the disciples before the Great Commission. In other words, the mission that we're going on ourselves is not the same mission as the one that Jesus sent the disciples on here. So you can't take the instructions He gives here and immediately apply it in our context because we're on a different mission entirely. However, when Matthew wrote this gospel, it would seem that he did see some of this as applicable. Matthew is building up to Jesus' Great Commission command in Matthew 28. The Great Commission will conclude. This gospel is the very last thing that Jesus told his disciples. That's going to serve, in a sense, as the climax for this book. So clearly it would appear that Matthew intends us to read this earlier mission in light of that latter one. The question is, in what way? Matthew's using this earlier mission to comment on the latter one, but how? What is he saying about the Great Commission from this mission in Galilee? Over the past two weeks, I've explained that there are actually two different ways that we can answer that question. On the one hand, it would seem that Matthew intends for us to see these instructions as applicable uh, for his readers. Uh, this is especially evident in the latter half of the chapter. There, Matthew recalls, for instance, Jesus' instructions about how to cope with fear. And that's because his own readers are probably wrestling with fear as they sought to be faithful to Jesus. They're experiencing persecution for their belief in Christ, and so Matthew's helping his readers persevere. 
by telling them about the principles that Jesus taught the disciples as they wrestled with the same struggle. So in this sense, Matthew seems to be providing his readers instructions from Jesus about how to persevere through persecution because he sees it as applicable and very useful for the church in his day. However, on the other hand, it doesn't appear to be all that's going on in the passage. That's not all that's taking place here. It also seems that Matthew is using this passage as an apologetic, as a kind of defense that answers many of the questions that his re Jewish readers would have had about the Great Commission. Uh, biblically speaking, the Great Commission is not a no-brainer. We take the Great Commission for granted today, but it was a major problem for these early Jewish Christians. And the reason is because the Old Testament was quite explicit in describing how Gentile salvation would occur, and it was after Israel's salvation. According to the Bible, the rest of the nations of the earth were supposed to be saved through Israel. And the Great Commission was messing with this order by opening up salvation to the Gentiles and salvation apart from obedience to the law of Moses specifically before the redemption of Israel. And Matthew's readers are wondering how this could be. Matthew's answering this question at several different points in this gospel, and Matthew 10, 5-15 is just one of those moments. If we want to know how to apply the principles that we find in this passage for today, then we need to read it in light of this apologetic first. The reason that Matthew provides for the Great Commission, ultimately, as we try to understand that apologetic, is Israel's rejection of the gospel. That's the reason why Jesus introduced the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Both here and throughout this gospel, he's demonstrating, Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus presented Israel with the opportunity to accept their mission role. And then they rejected it. Jesus hasn't rejected Israel, Matthew's pointing out. Rather, Israel has rejected him. And so Jesus has temporarily bypassed them in his mission until the time would come that they would accept him and fulfill their calling. Now, all of this is going according to plan, by the way. Matthew demonstrates later on in this gospel that the kingdom was supposed to happen this way. Uh, the Old Testament didn't predict this shift, but God knew it was going to happen. It had to happen this way. And this is the reason for the Great Commission. It's Israel's rejection of Jesus. So if you want to understand the instructions that we see here in Matthew 10, you have to read them in that light. Not every aspect of these pre-Great Commission instructions are applicable in a post-Great Commission world. And the difference maker is Israel's rejection of the gospel. That's what alters the directions we find here. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at how this concept was applied in the first three and a half verses of this passage. In verses 5 through 6, for instance, Jesus instructed the disciples to go specifically to the Israelites who were in this region of Galilee. Now, obviously, this is not a command that is still applicable for today. That's not applicable for the church after the Great Commission. Jesus has commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations of the earth. He hasn't restricted the mission to Israel. But what's notable is that Jesus conducted his mission according to God's priorities. And he expected his disciples to do the same. He knew that the Old Testament said that God would bring salvation to the earth through Israel. And he knew that Israel held a special place, a prime position in God's plan of salvation. And so he conducted his mission accordingly. And he commanded his disciples to do the same. And from this, we said that if we want to follow the implications of Jesus' commands, then we'll direct our mission 
purposefully. We'll seek out God's priorities in the gospel and we'll direct our mission according to these objectives. In the first half, or in, in verse 7 and in the first half of verse 8, Jesus then instructs the disciples to go preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and he empowers them to perform signs that would um, testify to this message. Once again, I explained that we shouldn't think that all of this instruction is prescriptive for today. In particular, I said we should not expect to perform the same kinds of signs and wonders that these disciples performed then because these signs would have been directed specifically at Israel in order to communicate a very particular message which the average Israelite would have understood very clearly. The meaning of the signs was wrapped up in the promises and commands that God had issued to Israel as his chosen nation, and they, they wouldn't have had the same effect on a global mission to Gentile nations as they would have had there. So we don't expect to conduct the global mission that Christ has given us with that same kind of spiritual authority. However, that said, Jesus did give the disciples a very clear message, and he empowered them to preach it in a way that was very clear and compelling. And so if we want to know how to imply, how to apply these instructions today, then this is where we'll land. We'll understand that our message should be preached clearly. We preach the singular message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and we'll provide evidence of this truth, evidence of this message, both with the testimony of the scripture and with our transformed lives. So we've seen that our mission must be directed purposefully. We've seen that the message must be preached clearly. And now today we'll discover that our actions, our action, actions should be conducted prudently. Our actions should be conducted prudently. This is the third and final principle in this passage. If we want to be faithful in Christ, to Christ's instruction for this mission, then the actions that we'll perform on this mission will be conducted prudently prudently. We see this starting in the second half of verse 8 and continuing through the end of verse 15. Follow along with me there. Jesus says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Once again, in the coming chapters of this gospel, Matthew is going to explain the reason why the Great Commission happened is because of Israel's rejection of the gospel. And if we read these instructions in light of this point, what we see is that what Matthew is establishing with this point is that Israel's rejection of Christ was not a mistake. What we're seeing first and foremost is that with these instructions, Jesus made very certain that Israel had an opportunity to hear his message. In other words, there's simply no excuse for Israel's rejection of Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 9, uh, he demonstrates that the religious leaders refuse to tell the people about Jesus. Matthew demonstrates that back in chapter 9. And so here in chapter 10, Jesus responds by sending the disciples out to tell the nations about him. 
instead, in their place, he made sure that they heard his message. He did it even to the point of going around the nation's religious leaders when those leaders refused to do their job. In verses 5 through 6, we saw that Jesus was very intentional about sending the disciples only to the region of Galilee. He didn't ignore or skip over Israel. He was intentional about telling them. In verses 7 and 8, we saw that Jesus also communicated the message clearly. He wasn't distracted by side agendas. He sent the disciples with one easy-to-understand message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gave them authority to demonstrate the truth of that message with an overwhelming preponderance of signs and wonders. So Israel can't say that the message was confusing, that they didn't believe because they didn't understand. They can't say Jesus skipped over them. They didn't tell them or didn't say it clearly, didn't give them evidence. Well, if we follow along the lines that Matthew has established here, then we can also see from this passage that this message was shared very efficiently as well. In other words, it wasn't just that Jesus told Israel about the kingdom. It wasn't just that he told them about it clearly, but he was also very effective in distributing his message in a way that it could be received. He very wisely, very prudently instructed his disciples to go out in their mission in such a way that their message could be heard very clearly. How did Jesus do this? How did these instructions demonstrate that Jesus' message was heard effectively? I think the best way to answer that question is by looking first at the commands that Jesus issues here, and then we'll look at the implications of these commands. Jesus issues three types of commands here. Let's look at those first, and then after I've explained those commands, let's work through the implications of the commands together. The first command that Jesus issues is to preach the gospel freely. He tells the disciples to preach the gospel freely. We see this primarily in verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. Jesus says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, the fact that the disciples should preach the gospel freely is obvious enough from the second half of verse 8. There Jesus says, You received without paying, give without pay. But this is actually... <clears throat> The point of verses 9 and 10 as well. You may be tempted to think, as I was, that Jesus is telling the disciples in verses 9 through 10 to go and preach the gospel dependently. You know, resting on God, relying on God. That may be what you think as you read verses 9 and 10. In other words, you may think that Jesus is going to give the disciples a lesson in faith here. And that he's commanding them to go with no provision... And then allowing God to provide for them along the way so they might grow in their faith. I'll tell you, that's what I thought when I first read this passage and saw what Jesus was saying here. The the problem comes when you compare this command with the parallel accounts for this command in other Gospels. For example, while you're holding your place in Matthew, flip over to Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. Mark 6, 7 through 13. Mark gives his account of this mission in Mark 6. And this is what he records in verses 7 through 13. He says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey 
except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place you will not, uh, they, uh, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who are sick and healed them. Now, did you catch what happened in Mark 6? There's actually a pretty significant difference between Matthew's record and Mark's. Now listen closely here. Matthew 10, 9 through 10. Maybe look at Mark 6 as I read this. Matthew 10, 9 through 10. Jesus says, Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. But in Mark 6, 8 and 9, Mark says that Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So according to Matthew, Jesus said, don't take a staff and sandals. But according to Mark, Jesus says, don't take anything but a staff and sandals. What's the deal? That may not seem very significant. That may seem kind of uh, unremarkable, but it's not actually that difference. Not only does this, does this conflict call into question the integrity of at least one of the gospel accounts. But the nature of this command itself is fairly significant. If according to Matthew, Jesus told the disciples not even to wear sandals on their journey, it only adds to the severity of this dependence. It not only does that, but it would appear that there was also very specific symbolic meaning to this instruction that we need to understand and apply because it certainly isn't a very practical instruction, is it? So we need to resolve this conflict, and when we do, I think we discover Matthew's reason for including this material in his gospel. If you notice, Mark prefaces this list by saying that Jesus instructed his disciples to take nothing for their journey. And the word for take there in Mark is iro, which means to take up or to pick up. Matthew doesn't include this statement in his account. Instead, he says that Jesus told them not to acquire any of these things. The word for acquire is taomai, and it means to procure or acquire. It's a word that's used more frequently in the sense of a business transaction. It speaks of something that is gained through some sort of exchange of good and services. It doesn't quite mean purchase exactly, but it's very close to that kind of a meaning. Further, if you note, in Matthew, Jesus prefaces the statement by saying, you received without paying, give without pay. Mark doesn't include that saying. And neither does Luke, actually, when he provides a very similar account to Mark's in Luke 9. So then how do you harmonize these accounts? How do you bring this together? I think it's by recognizing that Matthew and Mark are actually recording two different aspects of Jesus' instruction. Mark is recording what provisions Jesus told them to take with them on their journey, what kind of supplies they should gather before they left. They were to take nothing but a staff and sandals. Matthew was recording what provisions Jesus told them to acquire from the people they ministered to while on their mission. They were to receive nothing as payment 
not even a staff or sandals. If I could put it this way, Mark is interested in the dependence the disciples were expected to exercise while on the journey. Matthew, though, is actually interested in the price the disciples were expected to demand from the people they ministered to. So really, if verses 9 and 10 fill out and explain the command of verse 8, then the basic idea is that the disciples weren't supposed to profit from their mission. Now, we know from Mark and Luke that they were sent out without provisions, and so it's okay and even expected that they would be sustained by those they were, they were serving, but they shouldn't leave one town and then go on to the next without anything more than what they had when they came to that town. They weren't supposed to acquire anything. That's the sense of the explanation that Jesus provides at the end of verse 10. Jesus says that the disciples shouldn't acquire any of these things as they move from one town to the next. Why? He says, for the laborer deserves his food. The idea is that the disciples should be sustained by the people that they were ministering to. They shouldn't finance their stay in the second town that they visit with the generosity that they received from the first town. The town that is being ministered to by the disciples should finance their ministry to them. That's actually quite fair and just, by the way. The disciples are working among these towns. It's only fair that they receive payment for that work just as any other laborer would receive payment for the work that they do. However, Jesus is saying that they shouldn't receive anything more than a day's wages. They shouldn't receive anything more than a day's wages for a day's work. Just as any other laborer would receive only a day's wages for a day's work, so also should the disciples be paid for the amount of their labor that they perform and no more. So they shouldn't be getting rich off of it. i got to tell you, this is, this is an especially important instruction for Jesus to provide in light of the kind of empowerment that they've received. Is it not? Now think about this. How much would you be willing to pay someone if they could bring your father or your mother or your wife or your husband or even your son or your daughter back to life? One thinks, of course, of Simon the magician in Acts 8, right, who tried to purchase the disciples' gifts with money. That's the situation the disciples are facing. People are going to want to buy what they have to offer. They're going to go out cleansing lepers, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And people are going to be willing to throw money at the disciples to participate in the kinds of gifts that they're offering. But if the disciples begin to sell these gifts, or if it was in any way perceived that that's what they were doing, then the message is going to be lost. It's going to be confused. If you remember from last week, the disciples were sent to proclaim repentance. They were to call people to believe in Jesus. The signs were to accompany this message, but that's not the point. The point isn't the signs. The point was to call the nation to faith in Jesus. But if the disciples were to begin to sell their gifts, then that message is obviously going to be skewed. It would appear that the disciples came to heal, not to preach. Everyone would be swept away in the miracles and miss the message that they were meant to convey entirely. And not only that, but if the disciples did this, then it would communicate that money is the means by which a person participates in the blessings of the kingdom. And that's not how this is supposed to work. What must a person supply in order to participate in the blessings of the kingdom? 
It's repentance. It's faith, not money. The blessing that Jesus is offering can't be bought. The only way that you can receive it is by turning from your sin and self-righteousness and trusting in Christ. That message would be confused if the disciples were essentially selling the blessings of the kingdom for money. So do you see that how this command places a very necessary restriction on the performance of these miracles, a restriction aimed at preserving the integrity of the disciples' message? But that's not all this restriction does. It's also a very good way to determine the receptivity of a town that the disciples are ministering to. If no one in the town is willing to take care of the disciples as they preach in that town, then clearly that town isn't receptive to their message and the disciples are going to have to move on. Again, they didn't come with provisions. So they have to move on to the next town and this leads us to the next command. The disciples were to preach not only freely, they were to preach peaceably as well. That's the second command. They were to proclaim their message peaceably. Consider the message it would have communicated to every town and village when the disciples showed up wearing nothing but the clothing on their backs. These are men that are obviously coming in weakness. There's nothing intimidating or aggressive about the way they're presenting their message. They were men of peace, presenting their message peacefully. And this idea would have only been amplified by the way the disciples interacted with the people of that town once their message was rejected. Jesus says in verses 11 through 13, he says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. The basic sense of what Jesus lays out in verses 12 through 13 is pretty simple to understand. The disciples were to welcome those that welcomed them with a standard greeting of peace, shalom. This kind of greeting, of course, was not insignificant. Considering the apostles' mission, it expresses fellowship between the disciples and the one that they greet. It also expresses their desire for the good of the person they greet. The two parties involved in this kind of a greeting express both that they are at peace with one another and that they desire peace, not calamity, for the other person. It's both a greeting and a blessing. This is a significant greeting for the disciples to give, considering that they were coming as ambassadors of the king. When they extend this kind of a greeting to another person, they're saying that the other person is in good standing with the king and they can expect his blessing rather than his judgment. As ambassadors, as envoys being sent by the king in order to essentially establish peace with a rebellious nation on behalf of their king, their greeting communicates the king's attitude, his disposition towards his people. And it's a disposition of kindness and of mercy. It reflects a person's status with the king. For the, ambas for the ambassador to say peace is for them to say, the king sends you his kind regards. And he means to act in kindness towards you. And then on the other hand, for the ambassador to retract that greeting, that is to say that the king is not pleased with you. He is angry, and you can expect war with him. The people who are worthy in this passage appear to be those who are receptive to the disciples' message. 
The fact of the matter is that by this point in Jesus' ministry, there would have likely been people in every town in Galilee who would have heard something about Jesus or even witnessed his ministry personally. There would have been no short supply of people willing to receive the apostles once they entered the towns and the villages. And Jesus is essentially saying, if the town or house that you stay in welcomes you, then you greet them in return and you extend my offer of peace. But on the other hand, if they do not welcome you, if after you stay there, they retract their greeting, if they indicate that they are not at peace with you, then after they've heard you proclaim my message, then he says, allow your, your peace to return to you. You see how this plays out in verses 14 through 15. Jesus says here in verses 14 and 15, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, and when you, when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And Jesus tells the disciples to shake the dust off their feet. Now this may refer either to the dust on the bottom of their feet or to the dust on a person's clothes that's been kicked up by their feet. It's actually probably the latter of these two. They're kind of shaking out their clothing. And this sort of action would have sent a very clear message to whoever it was directed at. Not only would the shaking off of the dust from the feet communicate it, not only would it communicate a total and complete separation from the person that it was aimed at, but it was not uncommon for Jews in this day to do this as they re-entered into Israel from Gentile lands. It was believed that even the dirt of Gentile lands was unclean, and so Israelites would shake the dust off their feet when they entered back into Israel. So for the, for the disciples to shake the dust off their feet, this would have been very clear to tell this town or village that they were completely cut off from the Messiah. They were no better than the Gentile nations that he would judge at the establishment of his kingdom. Indeed, Jesus says here that these towns would suffer a fate worse than Sodom or Gomorrah for their rejection of his disciples. And so there's no peace here. That's what was communicated with the disciples' actions. In other words, they didn't whitewash their message for the sake of friendly relations. They made their message incredibly clear and demonstrated the implications of a person's rejection of what they had to say. And yet what's notable here is how Jesus instructs his disciples to go about communicating this idea. This rejection of the people who reject him. Note that the disciples don't initiate this retraction of friendly relations. They simply allow their peace to return to them. They do not pull away their greetings. The house or town that they stay in rejects them. It rejects their offer of peace. So they reject the offer of peace, and then the disciples don't fight it. In other words, they don't go to the courts and try to fight their case legally to share the message with that town. They don't get into an argument with the people that they're ministering to and try to force their welcome. They simply allow their greetings to be rejected and take them back, and then move on. This is significant. The disciples were to announce the coming of the kingdom, and this included a message of potential judgment. But they weren't supposed to quarrel with the people that they preached to. They were to simply declare the kingdom of God and the terms for peace, and if they were, they were rejected, then they were to go in peace. They didn't just go proclaiming peace. They went proclaiming peace peacefully. They proclaimed judgment and wrath, but they did so calmly and simply. 
They spoke the truth, but they didn't fight over it. They came as messengers of peace, and they were to proclaim that message peacefully. Even when their message was rejected, they were required to, and required to pronounce condemnation on their listeners. Even then, they did that peaceably. So the disciples were to preach their message freely. They were to preach it peaceably. Lastly, command number three. They were to preach it urgently. They were to move fast in their proclamation of their message so as to cover as much ground as they possibly could in the amount of time they were given. You see this primarily in verse 11, but the theme is carried over into verses 12, and 14, 12 through 14 as well. In verse 11, Jesus says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. You know, at this time, inns and other types of boarding houses weren't common in Israel. So it would have been expected that travelers would stay in a person's home whenever they entered a town or village on a journey. It was no different with the disciples. Once again, Jesus instructs his disciples to find a person who's willing to hear their message and allow them to stay with them, them and they're to stay with someone who is worthy. But Jesus adds this instruction to stay with that home until they should depart that town or village. So once the disciples have found a home that's welcoming them, they're supposed to remain in that home for the duration of their stay in that town. Perhaps this is because the disciples would be tempted to trade up, so to speak, you know, find a more luxurious accommodations after they've received a warm welcome. Uh, personally, I don't think this is very likely, since as we see starting in verses 12 and 14, and then continuing through the rest of the chapter, Jesus doesn't anticipate that the disciples are going to actually receive a very warm welcome in the towns and villages they're going to. He actually anticipates kind of constant persecution, actually. So the disciples are going to be staying only a short time in a home. Just I don't think they're going to do that just because they want to move up to a better one. They're staying a short time because their message is being rejected and they're being chased from one town to the next. These are short stays that are being envisioned. And this restriction will require that this stay will be short even when the disciples are being welcomed by a home. Again, consider the disciples aren't taking months much with them. They're going with very few provisions. They're not profiting off their work. Rather, they're being sustained by the homes that they're staying in on their journey. And since the disciples can only be sustained by one home in each town they enter, this is obviously going to limit the amount of time that the disciples ever spend in one town. I mean, if you think about it, right, the patience of even the most gracious host is going to wear thin eventually as they provide accommodations for the disciples. The disciples are likewise not going to want to abuse the kindness of their hosts. And so they're only going to stay in a home for a few days, perhaps a week or two at most, before they'll want to move on. And since Jesus is saying that they should only stay in the first home that welcomes them, that's going to keep the disciples moving on from town to town pretty quickly. Of course, this timetable is going to be accelerated even more quickly if the disciples are being rejected in that town before they wear out their welcome. But even if they aren't rejected, it's going to keep them moving pretty fast. And in the end, that sort of restriction really fits the entire purpose of this mission. 
According to the end of chapter 9, again, Jesus is sending the disciples out in Galilee in response to the thousands and even millions of people who hadn't heard him speak. He's sending them out because he's trying to broadcast his message to as many people as he possibly can. And so it makes sense that he would instruct them to preach their message quickly and then move on. If a town has heard and rejected Jesus' message, then the disciples need to go on to the next so that that town can hear the gospel as well. And even if a town has accepted their message, even still they need to keep moving as quickly as possible so that every town might have a chance to hear and believe their message. That's the picture that we have here. The disciples were to preach freely, they were to preach peaceably, and they were to preach urgently. So what are the implications of these commands? How do these commands demonstrate Jesus' prudence, his wisdom in proclaiming the gospel? How do they demonstrate that Jesus' message was shared effectively with Israel? How do they demonstrate that Jesus didn't just communicate his message clearly, but he even made sure that it was heard clearly as well? I think you can summarize the wisdom of Jesus in these commands into two basic points. First, with these commands, Jesus ensured that the message would be shared consistently. That it would be shared consistently. And what I mean by this is that Jesus made sure that the presentation of this message matched its content. There was no confusion created by the way the disciples preached their message. It was a message of grace that was preached with grace. It was a message of peace that was preached with peace. The disciples were sent to proclaim that salvation was being offered to everyone simply on the basis of faith, and the way they presented their message reinforced this idea. Their message, uh, the message that they were proclaiming was equally accessible to everyone. The rich didn't have a greater chance of hearing it than the poor because the disciples weren't selling it. Everyone would have basically an equal chance to hear. It was a message of grace that was presented in a way that proclaimed grace to the people. Again, even further, it was a message of peace that proclaimed peace. The disciples didn't quarrel with the people that rejected them, which would again confuse the message they were sending. They were proclaiming God's will to the people of Israel, and everything about their actions matched that message. And in this respect, the message was, once again, very clear. It was clear because the means of proclamation matched the content of the message. So this is one way. This passage shows us that Jesus' message was presented effectively. It was presented consistently. In other words, an Israelite couldn't complain saying, well, yeah, you know, Jesus told us. But he was just so offensive in the way he did it. He was so confusing. How are we supposed to realize that's what he was saying? I can't say that because there were absolutely no grounds for the confusion about what Jesus was saying. So, these commands were presented consistently. Second, with these commands, Jesus ensured that the message would be shared efficiently. So they were presented not only consistently, but efficiently as well. To put it simply, as much as possible, Jesus made sure that everyone had a chance to hear the message. An Israelite couldn't walk away from, the pa from this passage and say, well, we just didn't know. You know, Jesus didn't tell us. No, Jesus very intentionally and very purposefully made sure that his message was heard loudly and clearly by all of Israel. He went around the resistance of the religious leaders by sending the apostles. And he didn't just send the apostles, but he sent them to many of the towns and villages here in Galilee. 
Israel heard. Many of the people would have heard his message adequately. And Matthew's point in all of this, once again, is to demonstrate that really Israel has no excuse for their rejection of Jesus. Their rejection wasn't in any way due to some fault on Jesus' part. It wasn't, uh, it was, it wasn't even due to some fault on Israel's part, you could say. They didn't accidentally reject Jesus. No, they rejected him knowing full well what they were rejecting. And that is why the Great Commission happened the way it did. It wasn't because of Jesus, it was because of Israel. So all that said, what kind of implications should we draw from Jesus' instructions for today? How should we apply this passage and what Jesus says here for us today as we proclaim the Great Commission? It would appear that the hostility displayed, to answer that question, I'd make a couple observations. Uh, One, it would appear that the hostility displayed by Israel's rejection of Jesus at his death actually alters this take-nothing-on-your-journey concept. During the Last Supper, just before his death, Jesus amended his instructions here to the disciples. According to Luke 22, 35-37, just before his death, Jesus told the disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Again, in Luke, the, the, the emphasis is very much on the dependence of the disciples. They didn't lack anything. Look what he says. He said to them, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. The hostility of the world has apparently ramped up and up in its rejection of Jesus. That by the time of his death, he simply doesn't expect the world to receive the disciples with a warm warm welcome after he's killed on the cross. So they'll need to go with provisions. Because they should not expect to find anyone who will welcome them as they go. That's what Luke 22 is communicating. So it would seem that maybe this idea of dependence shifts as we get to the Great Commission because of the increased hostility to this message. Maybe it's okay for us to go with provisions as we go out to share the gospel. However, this idea that the disciples shouldn't profit from those that they minister to, I think it's probably fair to say that that's still in effect. Yes, it's okay for churches to support missionaries on the field, but like the Apostle Paul those missionaries should strive with every effort to make clear to those that they minister to that they do not mean to take anything from them, that they only mean to give to them. So really, the implications of this passage for today are are very much the same as when Jesus first issued them. You should preach the gospel consistently, meaning you should present the gospel in such a way that it matches the content of the message. You should present Christ's message of grace and love gracefully and lovingly. You should proclaim peace peacefully. You should preach the gospel consistently, right? And you should preach it efficiently. Meaning that you should make every effort to ensure that you're able to cover the most ground you can with the gospel in the shortest amount of time you can. As you strive to proclaim Christ, you apply this passage by conducting your actions prudently, wisely. You implement Jesus' instructions 
by intentionally and purposefully ordering your actions so as to maximize your impact for the gospel. That's what Jesus was doing with the disciples here when he gave them these instructions. And that's how you should think about the Great Commission as well. So as we close here this morning, let's pray that God would grant us the character and the wisdom to do just that. Obviously, we're not going to just unintentionally fall into this sort of a practice. There's a reason why Jesus is having to command the disciples to conduct themselves in this way. And it's because without this instruction, they probably never would have approached the gospel this way on their own. It takes mature character and far-sighted, deliberate preparation and planning to communicate your message this clearly, and most especially in the face of rejection. And that's what we've been called to do. Jesus has called us to himself so that we might proclaim the glory, his glory to the nations. And he has commanded us to pursue this mission with the kind of wisdom and integrity that he describes here. And we need to do this if we're going to succeed. So let's pray that God's grace uh, would help us to understand what this looks like for us today as we're obedient on this mission. Let's pray.